The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the newest episode of The Window on the World press review podcast. Today is Friday, January 20th, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on ChatGPT and advances in artificial intelligence, the repression in Iran, and populism and its relationship with democracy. Let's get started right away with the first series of editorials. Today's first topic is about ChatGPT, and more generally, the potential of this new form of artificial intelligence. Launched late last year by OpenAI Research Center, ChatGPT is a chatbot, a software capable of simulating a conversation with another human being. The uniqueness of ChatGPT lies not only in the sophistication of the software replies, but in its ability to learn from past interactions with other users. In addition to this, ChatGPT is capable of distinguishing faults from true information by comparing it with data it can find on the internet. ChatGPT fits into the field of so-called generative artificial intelligences, software that can generate original and coherent sounds, text, and images from user requests. ChatGPT is freely usable by reaching the research center's website, openai.com. Let's start with the Belgian newspaper La Libre. In his editorial, philosophy professor Luc de Brabender cried ChatGPT firsthand. The professor's first impression is one of amazement. The system makes many search engines and other algorithms obsolete. But while certainly as impressive a software, a machine remains a machine. ChatGPT's real innovation, he explains, lies in its ability to imitate humans. This system has in no way become more human than its predecessors. ChatGPT does not think. It collects, organizes, and presents a huge amount of information. However, it remains limited to the programming imposed on it by engineers. A computer cannot cross that line and call itself truly creative. Moreover, a computer can never be assigned responsibility for its own actions. Despite this, our society often entrusts many decisions to computer algorithms. ChatGPT's shock is just the latest in a society of chronically thoughtless men and women in the face of digital development. Let's stop attributing to machines the intelligence that we employ by building them, concludes the Brabondaire. What would Socrates have thought of ChatGPT? Wonders Miguel de Lucas, a university lecturer in literature and language and columnist for the Spanish El País. Every new technology brings with it new opportunities, but also new disasters. We invented ships and discovered shipwrecks. We invented trains, which can derail. Now it is too early to say what this innovation in artificial intelligence will entail. All the more so when we consider that we are just at the beginning of this technology's development. That back to the original question for De Lucas, Socrates would probably have compared ChatGPT to the sophist Gorgias. Does truth matter? For Gorgias, not so much. The professor continues. Gorgias's skillful rhetoric allowed him to exalt the infamous and debase the honorable, regardless of what the truth was. For Socrates, however, rhetoric should not only be art, but also revelation and knowledge, the only paths to virtue. 
Were he alive today, Socrates would be faced with a gorgeous elevated to infinity, with the same contempt for virtue, and with immediate and automatic access to the wealth of human knowledge available on the web. It is a search for truth, the columnist concludes, that distinguishes us from thinking machines, as smart as they are idiotic, as rich in data as they are empty of ideas. Of a less catastrophic and more cautious opinion is Ricardo Luna, columnist for the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. As we said in the introduction of this first part, one of the peculiarities of ChatGPT is its ability to learn from past interactions. The more we use it, the more it learns. The potential of such a tool is endless. How will it change the way we work, for example, speculates Luna. New technologies often bring with them excessive, often unjustified fears. In Italy, for example, a committee of senators had approved a report in which it compares the effects of the smartphone on the brain to those of cocaine. Sloppiness and scaremongering of that kind does not help us, the journalist says, to think about how to use technology better, how to make it a tool that improves our lives. The same measured approach should be applied to artificial intelligence. Many have been quick to say that ChatGPT should be banned in schools because it actually does homework in seconds, that when the future comes, a ban dictated by fear is not enough. Just think of fire. At first, it frightened human beings, but then they found ways to use it to their advantage. We should rather think about how to use this new fire, concludes Luna. The second part of this episode takes us to Iran where protests against the country's theocratic government are still shaking the country. The protests began last September following the death of Masa Amini, a young woman who had been arrested by Iran's moral police as being guilty of not wearing the Islamic veil properly. For its part, the government has cracked down hard on the riots, going as far as resorting to executing some of those arrested. We look back at the development and cause of the protests with the first editorial on the subject, written by Bahman Nirumand for Germany's Der Spiegel. What is taking place in Iran, the journalist explains, is a cultural revolution, a clash between modernity and tradition, a search for a new identity. The protests have shifted from demands for more rights for women to demanding more human dignity, more rights for all. Those under 43 today have known nothing but the Islamic Republic, Niramund notes. This is true for more than half of the country's 83 million people. Many of these people lead a double life. While they are secular in private, when confronted with public institutions, they come up against the government's religious indoctrination. Although the latter is still firmly in power, the protests have nonetheless achieved important results. They have cracked the theoretic state structure, exposing the corruption behind religious fundamentalism. They have even created divisions within the ranks of regime supporters. Given the widespread discontent, a return to the days before the uprising seems hard to imagine. The social division, the dissatisfaction of the population, the discrepancy between their private and public lives are too great. The columnist ends. The next editorial comes instead from the United Kingdom and from the Times newspaper. According to the British editorial board, the West should show toward Iran the same resolve it used against the Soviet Union. All the more so when we consider that the Iranian issue is intertwined with that of the war in Ukraine. 
Tehran, in fact, became a crucial drone supplier to Vladimir Putin's invasion army in Ukraine. In addition, the Middle Eastern country's religious government funds several terrorist organizations, such as Hezbollah. Even more disturbingly, the Iranian government's influence reaches far beyond the Middle East. British intelligence services have reported attempts to kill or kidnap UK-based people. All this makes it impossible to treat the regime as a potential partner. For the editors, there is no room for cooperation with the brutal regime of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. Western countries, the journalists conclude, should continue with sanctions and declare the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps the religious armed wing of the Iranian military, a full-fledged terrorist organization. The last article in this second part comes from France and the newspaper Le Monde. The transalpine satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo recently launched an international contest for caricatures of the supreme leader of Iran. For its part, the Middle Eastern regime responded by threatening the paper, citing last August stabbing of writer Salman Rushdie. For columnist and security expert Eric Delbeck, however, Charlie Hebdo cartoonists are not irresponsible and stupidly provocative idiots. One cannot remain silent in the face of regime threats. Islamic fundamentalism, the editorial reads, is a movement of violent and hegemonic conquest. It has nothing to do with complacency. It attacks, it advances. It dictates which Muslims are good or bad. Its ultimate goal is not what we do, but what we are. We are French, it reads in closing. We do not let ourselves be treated like lackeys by a bunch of old hateful ideologues and brutes who smear the word God. Today's final topic is populism, its relationship with and its effects on democracy. In recent years, several populist movements have influenced the political life of as many Western countries. The vote in favor of Brexit, the election of Donald Trump in the US and Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, but also the success of far-right parties in Sweden and Italy are just some of the effects of the growth of populist movements. Let's start precisely with Italy and Ezio Mauro's editorial published in La Repubblica. For the journalist, what we are witnessing in recent years is a radicalization of the most extreme fringes of the political spectrum, particularly on the right. Those on the far right are rebelling against a civil convention that has governed political coexistence for more than 70 years, in a sort of secession from common rule. The major crises that have characterized the past 10 years are not neutral events because they reshuffle classes and guarantees, interests and protections, reconfiguring the social landscape, leaving huge sections of the population outside the protection of the welfare state. What populism proposes to these people is not redemption, but revenge against a system controlled by elites they perceive as distant. Demagogy becomes ideology, legitimizing fake news and diluting it to the point of replacing reality as with the unfounded allegations of election fraud by Trump and Bolsonaro. In this context, populism takes distrust of institutions to the extreme, going so far as to oppose liberal principles and the rule of law. Although decline differently in each country, there are many traits that unite the various populisms. Why be surprised if Trumpism functions as a model and the attack on institutions in Brasilia replicates the assault in Washington? Perhaps we should reason, Mauro concludes, 
about our ability to quickly absorb, digest, and forget the subversion 2.0 consumed on live TV. We'll stay in Southern Europe and go to Spanish newspaper El País. Spanish journalists also identify a link between populist, when not explicitly subversive movements, in Western countries. In fact, let us not forget that even in Germany, a group planning a coup was foiled a few months ago. From the assault in Washington to the one in Brasilia, we can trace a path towards a dangerous outcome of the assault on institutional powers, intimately connected to the populist claim to bypass the system of institutional checks and balances and gradually transform democracies into electoral autocracies. The populist goal is to prevent anyone who is not them from governing, using whatever manipulative means are at their disposal, and to discredit the very institutions they conquered when they rise to power. Democracy does not die with a sudden shock. Rather, it dies from a cancer whose metastases reach more and more disaffected citizens. It will require the commitment of civil society but also of political representatives who must show an absolute and clear respect for the fundamental rules of the democratic game, the first of which is tolerance of political opponents and the peaceful and fair transfer of power, a commitment that must be constant because, they conclude, it is worth remembering the trivialization of this threat is another symptom of democratic deterioration. The last article on populism and the far right, however, deals more closely with a strictly European issue. It is about Sweden's six-month presidency of the Council of the European Union, which began on the 1st of January. MEP Malin Bjork tells us about it in the Belgian publication EU Observer. Like many, I assumed that the Swedish presidency would be an opportunity to make progress on some of the EU's most pressing challenges – climate, refugee policy, gender equality, rule of law and democracy, the MEP states. Unfortunately, Bjork continues, it did not take long to realize that this would not be the case, as the Swedish conservative government includes the far-right party, Sweden Democrats. They are not a majority force in the Nordic government, but they have already influenced its policies considerably. On migrants, they have made it easier to revoke residence permits. Statistics also point out how one in four children who come from a migrant background experience racially motivated abuse or aggression. Also, on the climate issue, the Swedish government has announced that it will cut the budget for environmental policies by about 60%. But racist bluster and migrant scapegoating will only go so far. Indeed, Bjork recalls that the main demands of European voters are climate change and providing decent housing, living standards and public services. The MEP in closing is confident that the union, its institutions and its citizens will be able to overcome this challenge and will fight for a better Europe. That brings us to the end of this installment of the Window on the World Press Review podcast. Thank you so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday with more editorials from around the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's Gail Rago. Until next week, goodbye.